Today is Pentecost Sunday. Um, it's a day all over the world that Christians are celebrating the outpouring of the Holy Spirit onto the church. Um, but we decided to leave today, sometimes we do like a special sermon on today, but we decided to leave today the last installment of our reconciliation series. Um, because as you're going to see in the passage that Jake and I are going to read today, um, Pentecost, the outpouring of the Spirit of God on the family of God, is not just about signs and wonders and speaking in tongues and miracles and lots of people coming to faith in Jesus, even though we want that. Um, it's also about what the Spirit of God does in our relationships. And part of the miracle on Pentecost is that people from different cultures understood each other, right? And the Spirit of God was given for this. So we actually thought today was a perfect day to round out this series. So we spent one Sunday talking about the image of God in people, another Sunday talking about um, tribes. We were talking about how we live in this age of tribalism and polarization between those tribes and how God has called us to reconciliation in the midst of all of that. Last week, Kiara and I did a discussion together on God pulling down this dividing wall of hostility. And today, Jake and I are going to uh, finish this series talking about just some very practical patterns of what it means for us to give up power uh, to love each other. And on one hand, I want you to know, there's a sense in which like Jake and I are like maybe like some of the least qualified people to speak to this. Um, you know, there's, there's so many other people who've been on the receiving end of having less power in society. Um, but Jake and I actually felt like uh, it would be good for us to speak today to some of the things that we're talking about. And here's why. Um, Jake and I journeyed together in leadership here at the TAB and in other places in our community. Um, we talk a lot about leadership and what God is doing in our lives. And Jake and I are both aware that there are certain things about us um, that some, sometimes, in some places, create an easier path to leadership and influence. We're both guys. Um, we're both white. Uh, we both are tall. Believe it or not, studies actually show that tall people get more leadership opportunities. <laughs> Good job. That's, 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 that's the whole sermon, is just stepping off the... Um, <laughs> um, um, we both grew up with a lot of opportunities. Um, neither of us grew up poor. Um, and we both have gifts that lend themselves to being in front of a group of people like this. You know, Jake and I, even in the life of our church, are often in front of you um, and are often receiving, you know, compliments for that. All of those things put us in positions where sometimes we get opportunities to lead that other people might not. And unfortunately, that's true not only in society, it's also true in the church sometimes, you know? Um, some of you know, if you don't share some of the characteristics that me and Jake have, that sometimes those opportunities just don't show up, you know, in the same kind of way. So what Paul is talking about today, we were like, it would actually be perfect if Jake and I, not as experts, but just kind of modeled to you reading this passage and considering what it means for people like us to give up power in response to what Paul is saying, okay? So we're gonna take our seats here. And Jake, you can get, oh, I, I need to make this announcement, I'm sorry. Hey, today we have these new everyone gets to play cards in, your, in the seats in front of you. Um, we are rebuilding our volunteer base for Sunday mornings. I meant to say this earlier, but I can't miss this. Um, we really believe in keeping the gospel tab lightweight and low maintenance so as many resources as possible can go to mission. 
And one of the ways that we do that is we keep our staff actually pretty light. The Gospel Tab only has one full-time staff member. It's Steve Rossi. The rest of us are very part-time. And Sunday is not possible um, unless we all volunteer. And so I want to encourage you, if you regularly come on Sunday, I want to ask you to consider how you can volunteer. Everyone can do something, and especially after the pandemic, as more people are showing back up to church again, uh, we need to rebuild our teams. So there's lots of ways for you to volunteer, and you can leave this card for us, but maybe uh, the most critical area is in our children's ministry, pulling off the kids walking up here and going downstairs requires a lot of volunteers. Before the pandemic, we had something like 70 people volunteering in our children's ministry, um, and we have to rebuild those teams. And so uh, Bree, our children's ministry director, wants you to know that as it stands right now, most Sundays, we will be able to provide children's ministry, but not all, because we don't have enough uh, children's ministry volunteers yet. But we're confident that people are going to say, I can sign up for once every few weeks um, to do that so that we can provide it every Sunday. So we just want you to know where we're at in terms of our volunteer capacity, all right? Um, and volunteering is a great way to get to know other people in the church. It's a great way to build relationships with other people, a great way to grow in your gifting. So everyone can do something. So we encourage you to fill this out. All right, Jake, why don't you get us started? All right. Um, yeah, so we're going to start off with reading a passage from Scripture in 1 Corinthians 12, um, verses 12 through 26, um, which eventually will lead into opportunity for Joel and I to dialogue together and just share from some of our personal experiences. Um, but before we do that, we want to hold it all up to the Word of God. Um, so I'm going to read through that um, entire passage, actually, and then we're going to kind of go back and forth just on some brief um, teaching on the passage, and then we'll get into some dialogue from there. So, um, 1 Corinthians uh, 12, 12 to 26. Just as one body, though one, has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one Spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given the one Spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. Now, if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not, for that reason, stop being a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not, for that reason, stop being part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts of the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unrepresentable are treated with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. 
Okay. Um, so I'm going to start talking with uh, verses 12 to 14. Um, is it cool to just throw that back up there? Oh, perfect. Okay. Whether Jew or Gentiles, slave or free, we're all given the one spirit to drink. Okay. A little summary. <laughs> um, yeah, so this is a really, really um, critical way to open this passage. Growing up, I read this passage a lot, but I never really leaned into this part super hard. When Paul's talking about there is no slave, there is no free, there is no Jew, and there is no Gentile under the covenant, the new covenant of Christ, um, under the good news of the gospel. Um, I always kind of read this passage and really just thought about like gifting, you know, like and how the body works together, like certain gifts play with these certain gifts and these certain gifts to make up something full. Um, but really, it's like so much deeper than that. Like Paul is saying from the get go, like there is no longer any level or separation of peoples like all make up the body of Christ. Um, and it says we are given the same spirit to drink. And I never realized that either. Like, I never thought about that. Like, what does that mean? And really, it's like we've all been baptized, you know, into, like, the family of God. And now we drink from that pool of baptism. Um, but it's not optional to drink from it with only the people that look and think and act like you. It's like when you are drinking from the pool of baptism, like, I'm choosing to drink from the pool that everybody's drinking from. It's like an all-in-one thing. Um, I did have something. Oh, yeah. It's like it's, he's saying, like, the body of Christ is, it isn't optional. It is a multicultural, multi-ethnic experience. Um, and, like, the body of Christ cannot and will not operate in the fullness of the power of heaven unless we are operating in diverse, unified, reconciled community. Um, and so just, like, from the very beginning of this passage, he leans into that and just sets that precedent that that is actually what we are drinking from together. We are drinking from this pool of diverse, reconciled, unified community under the power of Christ. Yeah, like Jake, I think I grew up uh, hearing parts of this passage taught all the time, but it wasn't until much later that this Jew-Gentile Jew, slave or free thing was highlighted for me, that this isn't just about spiritual gifts. This is about people who represent different races, different cultural identities, different socioeconomic classes who are experiencing the Holy Spirit together. And that really informs then the next part of what Paul is saying when he gets into this whole thing about the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. you know, he personifies this body and has parts of the body you know, talking to each other essentially. And I especially like what's said in verse 21 here, the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. So Paul's argument is not that we should try to be a diverse community following Jesus because other people need us. Um, Paul's argument is that if we do not fully reflect our community, we cannot say to those parts of our community that are not reflected in our movement that we don't need them. The loss is actually to us. Mm -hmm. And I find that interesting because one of the ways that, uh, you know, the story of the United States has played out in the church, one way the church has really been affected by our story and by our culture, is that generally speaking in the United States of America today, on a Sunday morning like today, people are worshiping with people who generally look like them. Um, this is what the American church looks like. And what Paul is saying is, as long as that is, is you know, completely the case, uh, the loss is actually to us. Like, there are things that I need 
uh, in my discipleship, in my walk with Jesus, in my experience with God that I will not get if I'm only around people who are like me um, because God is working in people who are different than me. So, you know, over the years, people have asked me, does, you know, does every church have to be diverse? Um, I would say, man, there ought to be a prayer in our hearts that we reflect the community that we live in. Um, you know, surrounding this church, I don't know, if you took a five or 10 mile radius, you would find um, rich and middle class and poor. You would find rural, suburban and urban, white and black, you know, um, and, uh, you know, increasingly more diverse populations. You know, there's Spanish speaking families moving into my neighborhood. Um, and it is, it is uh, what Jesus wants in a gathering like this or in the way that we relate to each other as a family that we're receiving from Christ uh, from people who have different experiences than us. Um, okay, so uh, verses 22 to 24, those parts of the body that seem to be weak are, are indispensable and the parts that we think are less honorable we treat with special honor. The parts that are unrepresentable are treated with special modesty, while the presentable parts, they need no special treatment. Um, so it's really easy to apply this type of, like this passage right here to like a family dynamic, like, or a marriage. Like if your spouse or someone in your family, like, Every person has strengths and weaknesses, and, and, and if you like, look at that person and you're able to dissect, or discern like, what their strengths and their weaknesses are, then the question becomes, I think, like, what do you do with those? Like, how do you nurture them? How do you care for them? How do you, what happens there? And if you apply this same passage to like, different variances in cultures, where I think every like, people group and culture has certain things that we might define as strengths and weaknesses, the same as each individual person does, um, then the question becomes, what do we do with that? And I think like increasingly in society, it just feels like the answer is, well, expose the things that you, just, that you think are weakness. Um, you know, and I think that the, what Paul's saying is the gospel has a different plan for that. And so he's talking about how do we provide modesty to places where we discern weakness and how do we honor places where we discern strength. Um, and I think the more that we're able to enter into that place, like we're providing a table for reconciliation to happen. Um, so I think that that's really important. Um, and I think there's a reality too in this that like, if you live and you exist in a society where you are part of like majority culture, then it's a good, it's a good chance that you're going to find that like you've been honored in lots of places. That's my experience. Like I'm a part of majority culture. And so like, I don't find often that like I'm lacking honor for my personality and the way that I live, the way that I do things. But I do think increasingly I'm finding if you exist in minority culture, that's not often the case. Like there are times where you lack honor. Um, you know, it hasn't been bestowed upon you. And so this is like the good news of the gospel says, where can I find those places and begin to bestow honor where it's lacking um, rather than just looking out for more for myself. So that's what I saw in this part. Mm -hmm. And then Paul goes on to talk about this concept of equal concern for each other. And this is where Paul does want the church to end up is that we all have equal concern for one another, but he provides for us in this passage a pathway to get there. Um, he says that God actually gives greater honor to the parts of the body of Christ that have lacked it um, so that there should be no, vision, no division. And he says, we, Jake already read it, that the parts that already have honor don't need special treatment. Um, so the illustration that I like to use for this, it's why these apples are sitting here. I have one basket 
with one apple in it. And I have another basket with two apples in it. Three. <laughs> Three apples. I'm not good at math. <laughs> um, and let's pretend that each of these baskets represent a different tribe of people. So we've been talking about tribalism. Now listen, tribalism is a is a um, complex concept. Um, all of us aren't part of just one tribe, but multiple tribes. And so some of those tribes probably lend themselves to lots of strengths. Some of them, you know, might have more weaknesses. Um, I would say that uh, historically, some tribes have had more power and some tribes have had less power. Just a really clear example of this in United States culture, today, the average white family in the United States, we're just talking, like take, this is a statistic about income, take all of the income of white families in the United States and pick the average of all of those incomes. That average is 10 times more than the income of the average African-American family in the United States. That does not mean that there aren't poor white people. There's lots of poor white people. That might be you, actually. Um, it doesn't mean that there's not wealthy black people. That might be you, actually. But this is just like social science 101. When you see a giant disparity like that, it means that this isn't just left up to people's individual choices. There is a story behind that. And in the United States, there is a story behind that. There's a story of the way slavery allowed whole generations of people, disallowed whole generations of people from accumulating wealth. Um, the way the Jim Crow laws did the same thing. There's other things like, you know, if you've ever heard of the, um, of the burning of uh, huge financial assets in the black community in Tulsa, Oklahoma, um, in the early part of the 20th century, um, just millions of dollars were lost of black investment. Um, those things accumulate over time and were left in this situation. So it means that in groups of people, um, and it doesn't even mean that we had to do anything individual you know, to participate in that. It's just in groups of people, um, some tribes have more apples than others. Well, and, and you might be an exception in either of those, and that's totally legitimate. Your story is valid, but as groups of people, um, this situation exists. Well, here's how God reaches out and, and responds to that in his love. He, he does love everyone equally, but what he doesn't do is say, I'm gonna put two apples in this basket and put two in here because I love everyone. Because as you can see, it creates the same disparity. Um, and we understand this as parents because um, this is how we would treat our kids. I have three kids, I love them all equally. You couldn't tell me I don't love them all equally. Um, but if one of them got really sick today, that one would get more of my love and attention uh, expressed right? Um, because that's where the lack is. So my love is going to fill that, right? Well, this is what God does with individuals and with groups of people. Um, he says, look, I love everyone equally. So what that means is I'm going to put three in here, right? And one in here. The, the parts of the body that need special honor will get it from God. Um, the parts that already have honor don't need more, right? And it has nothing to do with his love, like not loving these groups the same. It's just God is loving real people in real situations with real context. And I would say this is the same, it's true, I can tell you it's true in church leadership. As a pastor, um, I don't feel like I have to keep showering honor on the people who already get a lot of honor, right? Um, but on the folks who get less, 
I have a special role as a leader to highlight them, to see them, right? Um, to point out what they're doing, right? Because other people aren't seeing it. So that's a way that I can use my leadership. That's, this is God's idea of equality. This is what creates equal concern in the body so that people's dignity is restored. That's good. Um, and then I think the last part of the passage really just like plays right off of that. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. And I feel like one thing that Paul's doing in this is he's trying to take us deeper than my judgment and assessment of what is worthy of honor and respect and what is earning, what, what is not. It's like, even in the places where I might see that like someone is suffering or they lack honor, but I don't quite understand it. I don't quite like, like maybe I can even say, well, I think I understand why they're in that place. Maybe they did that to themselves. Maybe it was self-detrimental in a certain case. It's like he's still saying, how can I still lift that person up and honor them, even if I don't understand it? It's like it's deeper than my assessment of what should get honor. Um, I was thinking this passage led me to thinking about the story of the prodigal son. And, you know, the prodigal son, like, gets all the money from the father and leaves home and goes and lives frivolously. And, and this, this example doesn't hold up true from all of our conversations of different cultural experiences. But in his case, he spent all of his money and he's like all of a sudden just like stuck. And so he decides, I'm going to come home and be a servant. And on his way home, the father, you know, goes out and wraps his arms around him and meets him, um, not needing anything from him in that moment. But the other brother, while they go in and he prepares a feast for that son who has returned and bestows this incredible honor on him, that son is kind of left to think that one who had stayed and never left and had kind of always done the right thing was left saying, well, why didn't I ever get that feast? Like, why is he getting honor and I'm not? And I think like in that, the, like he missed out on a blessing of joy, like his opportunity to like rejoice in his brother's return and join in the feast. Um, like there was joy at that table, you know, but he was kind of left saying, well, I think I've made an assessment of who deserves honor here and who doesn't. And he missed out on a blessing of joy. And so I think Paul's calling us to go deeper than that and just honor and love and respect even in the places we don't understand. And so it's just entering into like other people's experiences. If you are suffering, I'm not gonna judge why you're suffering, but I'm gonna enter into that with you. And if someone else is bestowing honor on you, um, I'm not gonna try to assess whether or not I think you deserve all of that honor. I wanna join in and I wanna honor you all the more. Um, and I think when we do that, we experience the joy of the Lord, so yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that is so good because I think even, I think one of the things tribes fight about in our culture is who's getting more honor. You know, it's like, oh, why do we always have to talk about this? Or why do we always have to, you know? But it's like just to enter in and rejoice with whoever's getting honored, you know, like especially in the body of Christ. That's really, really good. Okay, so Jake and I are gonna um, dialogue some here. Um, Last week, we had someone asking us questions, and you could text in your questions. We're not doing that today, because we actually got so much material from last week that was playing to build off of. So I've kind of made some like uh, composite kind of questions from what was texted. Um, so I've, I kind of combined some, and uh, I'm going to throw these questions out, and then we'll talk about it. But I loved the question that Kiara threw out first. This was her therapy background. If you know Kiara, she was a marriage and family therapist uh, before she was on staff here. Um, and she asked a really good question that I want us to reflect on as we do this together. Um, because this is, these, you know, we're talking about hard things. This is, can be uncomfortable. So what are some helpful ways that you navigate curiosity and vulnerability in hard conversations? 
So what does that look like for you to enter into a hard conversation? I have an answer too, but if you want to go first, you can. I'm honoring yeah, um, I think <laughs> for me, like I've been on this journey of like um, just garnering like more kingdom understanding on these issues of reconciliation and justice and I've been on this journey for a bit and I think almost all the time like my approach to conversations is like I, I just want to learn whatever you may have to impart to me like I want that so like I go away with like hang out with Joel I'm constantly asking him questions and I think it's me just saying like uh, like I'm curious and I am vulnerable and then I definitely don't have all the answers so like I want to ask questions, and even if I don't agree with you on everything, that's fine. I still want to ask and listen and get anything from you that I can. Um, it's like this just posture of like learning and like putting yourself in a position to receive. Mm-hmm. It's been huge for me. Yeah, and it's one of my favorite things about you, actually, that you, you, questions that you ask tons of questions, but you do it. You do it with everyone, and it's interesting because that, in and of itself, is a way to give up power. You know, and. Um, you know, Jake and I have talked honestly about these things because in many of the categories that I mentioned at the beginning of this, we have similar experiences. Um, and we both have personalities that can fill up a room. We both are people that, you know, people are going to tend to look to as leaders. And I think one of the ways to kind of disrupt that uh, is to put yourself in the position of a learner, you know, and just to ask questions. You know, and the best leaders I know are the ones who never think they know it all, you know, but are constantly asking questions. Um, and that's, that's what I think about with this too. Like, it's interesting in here, I'll, I will speak as a white person. Um, there is so much, uh, you know, unless you're like just an outright, like blatant white supremacist, you know, I think especially in the church, there's a lot of shame and fear about being viewed as racist. You know what I mean? And, um, and I think what that creates, it creates this kind of um, um, like hiding, you know, and this kind of defensiveness that's like, well, I'm not that. You know what I mean? And it's so interesting because we don't do that to other areas of sin. You know what I mean? Like there's other areas of sin. I think I'm still growing it, like growing in holiness. Like who, whoever becomes like an expert in holiness, you know what I mean? An expert in learning how to love, you know, other people. So I think like part of the curiosity is like admitting like, no, there are ugly things in my heart. You know what I mean? Like I do not get this right all the time. I have not perfected my ability to love other people. You know what I mean? And part of learning how to love other people is asking good questions. So I loved what you said there. Yeah, I think that just like sparked something in me for a while in navigating this and talking to people. I always felt like going into the conversation, like I don't want to tell you what I know. I'm not, I'm not approaching it that way, but I need you to view me a certain way. Like, I need to make sure that you don't think I'm racist, that you don't think that I believe these certain things. Like, and so I would just, like, say things to try to, like, make sure that you understood that maybe I understand what you're saying and I'm with you. I'm, and the more I go, it's like, no, I just need to, like, posture myself vulnerably and humbly, and God will do that. I don't have to make you see me a certain way. And I do think that can be a barrier for us. Like, if you are a white person trying to navigate those conversations, you want... If it's a person of minority, I want them to view me a certain way. I want them to know that I'm in their court and I don't think certain things maybe. And which honestly, sometimes we all think those things anyway. So like you can act like you're perfect in all of this. So yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So here's, here's a question. 
Um, in our church, our network, we often talk about these kairos moments. So a kairos moment um, is a, a moment in time when God is speaking to us and imparting grace to us. Some of you may be, feel that lang- be familiar with that language by being around us. If you're not familiar with it, it's okay. It's just a point in time when God is saying something and inviting us to turn to him and what he's saying and to partner with him. Um, so as we look at this passage, all of this stuff about honor and every Kairos moment, every time God speaks, he's inviting our repentance and our belief, our turning to him and following him. Um, what have been moments of repentance, you know, for us in this journey of reconciliation, you know, from when we're coming from culturally, um, what has that looked like in repentance? Um, I think the first thing I would say for me is it's definitely been a lot of those types of moments. Like if I try to think back to like, like eight years ago or something, like how I thought and viewed these things then and how I do now, like more than anything, it's just been like these series of moments where like God has spoken something to me, maybe through a conversation or through like reading a passage of scripture a different way. Lots of times through conversation or hearing someone say something um, where God is clearly speaking and like all of a sudden I start to see something a different way and have to kind of acknowledge the way that I didn't see it before and, and all that. It's been a lot of those, a lot, a lot, a lot of those. And I think they're so good too because they humble us, right? Like we need these moments. We don't need God to just give us the blueprint to know how to navigate all this. Like I need these Kairos moments because they keep me humble. They keep me low and close to the cross. Um, Like where I can actually receive more, you know, like if we're not near that place and we can't actually receive from him. So I'm really thankful for those moments and there's been lots of them. Um, One particular that comes to mind for me, it was like a handful of years ago, maybe like three or four, I was doing like a Skype prayer with one of my friends who I went to college with, and, and, um, and he's, a, he's an African-American and a pastor at a different church, and we were just like talking about some of these things, and then we went into prayer together, and in the midst of the prayer, actually both of our postures in that moment were just like um, crying out to God with some of these things that we're seeing like justice wise and like impartiality and just praying for him to like change us and mold us and he just like said something in the middle of the prayer he's like hey man and said it very you know like humbly and just like threw it out there but he's like I think you I think you need to like consider like your family's participation in like the, the, the history of some of these things and in, in, in America's you know reality with um, how certain things have been like built and boosted and and um, and you need to consider that and like even maybe repent for like your family's participation in slavery or you know and he said that and I was like you know okay okay like my heart's soft I'm gonna I'm gonna say those words and so I repented for it in, in word but after the prayer, it really got me thinking like a lot. I had never considered this before. And, you know, part of me was almost like, well, my family, you know, didn't like own slaves, quote unquote. And, you know, they, they didn't do certain things. I kind of wanted to just like brush it off and say like this, that's fine for other families, but this isn't my family. Um, but man, like God really started to speak to me just from like something that my friend had offered up. And it really began to change my thinking. Um, and like to start my ask myself questions what does that mean to like repent um for even if my family didn't own slaves 
Um, you know, when I found out, I, you know, I kind of searched and found out when I think they started to like live in America. And okay, so it, what does it look like to rent per repent for that? What does it look like to repent for ways that my family has benefited, you know, from slavery and from like a culture and a society that boosts one people group over another and empowers one over another? What does it look like to repent for that? Even if I don't feel like I do those things myself. Um, is that dishonoring my family? Like, am I, am I dishonoring them by, by even thinking that kind of thing? And, man, God just started to, like, talk to me a lot about that and, like, really soften my heart to it to say that, like, even in my own life, it caused me to realize the ways that I have benefited from things that just aren't right and aren't fair. Um, and, man, it really, like, brought me to an actual place. Like, in the prayer, I said it, I repent, but it really brought me to a place of repentance. Like, and in that, God even spoke to me, like, things like, this is a way to honor my family. Like, to bring and lift them up before the throne, um, you know, like, that is an honoring thing. Um, so, yeah, like, just that, that Kairos moment began to change a lot of my thinking and really opened me up to actually, like, embrace, like, a lot of conversations that I have now and understand, like, where my place is and all this and, and all of that. So. Mm-hmm. I love that, Jake, because that right there is so much closer to an actual theology of sin in the Bible mm. than the way I think most Americans think about it. You know, like we're, we're such an individualistic culture that the way we think of sin is what I did wrong. Mm. But sin is a power in the Bible that enslaves whole generations of people, that literally builds whole cultures. Like, like if, if, if I think sin is just what I did wrong, I don't realize how bad it actually is, you know? And you know what's sad about that? I won't realize how wonderful the cross is either, you know, until we realize, like, how bad sin is, you know? Um, like, what the cross accomplished was not just erasing some bad things I did. It's all of the things I didn't know I did. It's all the things in my history. It's all the things in my culture. Like, the cross is dealing with all that stuff. That's what we think Jesus' sacrifice did, you know? Um, and I think, like, like, I loved what you were saying about repentance at the beginning because I think we often think, we, we reserve repentance for, like, the most heinous things we do, you know? Like, I need to repent over these really heinous things. But repentance is just turning to God um, again and again and again. And sometimes it's not even from something really awful, it's just something we didn't see before, and now we're turning to God. That's repentance, you know? Um, and the more I follow Jesus, the more I love repentance because it's turning to him, you know? Like, every time, like, why, why be defensive and say, I don't need to repent? Like, I want to repent as much as I can, you know what I mean? Like, you need to keep turning to him because, like, repenting over something like the way our families may have participated in these dynamics, um, you know, or the way I participate in these dynamics unknowingly, what it requires is me knowing that I'm loved by God, you know? If I don't know that I'm loved by God, I will try to defend that and be like, no, I didn't do that, I didn't do that. I know lots of people like that. They're always defending the sins they didn't commit. And what I think is, you just don't know how much God loves you. You know what I mean? If you did, you wouldn't have trouble going low. You know, you wouldn't have trouble admitting, you know, that and, and turning to God. I think about... Um, you know, just the way I grew up. I grew up in this church, grew up in this area. I don't know that in the segregation of this area, I don't know that in all of high school, I really had one black friend, you know? Um, and uh, so my first opportunity to really build like 
some cross-cultural relationships. I was working at this urban ministry on the north side of Pittsburgh in college. And uh, there I formed a really close friendship with an African-American friend of mine. He's still one of my closest friends and our families have been on vacation together and this relationship has persisted. Um, but this was new for me, you know what I mean? I was eager, excited. And he was starting a homeless ministry on the north side of Pittsburgh. And one day he came to me, we were working together, and he said, um, hey, I, I'm working with a homeless guy and he's from Beaver County. I know you're out from that way in Aliquippa. And I was wondering if you could think of a church um, that he you know, could come to. And here, here was my response. I'm probably like 19 years old. Um, I said, oh yeah, uh, there's a black church on such and such a street you know, that he could you know, go to. Um, and my friend was like, well, he's white. You know? <laughs> um, and just in that moment, I realized what had happened, several things. Um, I was just playing out the script of Beaver County, by the way. Like, we've all played out that script. You know what I mean? I'm just playing out the script that Beaver County gave us, you know? Um, that certain people worship with certain people, that my friend would only be ministering to a certain kind of person, right, that looked like him. Think about it. I hadn't seen. I literally grew up in the church and hadn't seen people minister to people who had looked different than them. And you know how Kiara, she so beautifully expressed last week, like, assuming the best of intentions, that's what my friend did for me. And honestly, I want to say in this whole journey, in, in my story, many, many times, it has been black people who have showed me the grace of God, you know, in these conversations. I've learned the dimension of God's grace. This is why we need each other. I cannot say to the hand, I don't need you, right? I have learned the dimension of God's grace from people who are different than me, you know, even in embarrassing moments. And that was embarrassing. I could feel my face flush. And it wasn't this like prejudice, it wasn't this like I hate you, um, it was just playing out the script. Well, when we're playing out an idolatrous script that's built on sin and we're participating in it, that's a call to repentance. Mm -hmm. Just to say, oh, that, and that's what I did, I just humbled myself to my friend. I was like, I was like hey, I just, I, I just never let the kingdom of God challenge the script. You know, it, it, maybe I really didn't see it, but that doesn't mean I'm not responsible for it, you know? And so I'm sorry, I humbled myself. Um, you know, he extended forgiveness to me. Um, and that, that friendship has been one of those places in my life. Okay, next question. As we think about um, things like honoring, all the stuff in this passage, honoring, entering into the stories of others, giving modesty to the weaknesses in other cultures, um, what does this practically look like? So I'll start here. Um, just what does, what does enacting... 1 Corinthians 12, all this honoring, showing modesty, not showing special treatment. What does this look like practically? I'll give you a really small, this isn't like something that's like changing systemic issues surrounding justice. It's just a really small example. But I'm realizing that the more leadership I have, right, I'm like in the life of our church, I'm the lead pastor, right? I play a certain role in the life of our church. And no matter how much I try to diminish that, and we, and we try, by the way, we let other people preach, um, that's very intentional because we do not want to form our church around me and my personality. But, but I'm still a lead pastor, and that comes with being viewed a certain way, right? Um, here's what I've learned in, in that. Both in the ways I cheer people on and in the ways I remain silent, um, I'm 
I'm not giving special treatment to people who already have honor, and I'm giving honor to people who don't have it. So for me, this plays out in our Sunday worship service. If I see that someone's taking a risk with their gift, if I see that um, you know, they follow God in a new way, if I see that they're putting themselves out there vulnerably, you know, in a cultural position, they're a minority in our church, whatever, I'm probably gonna be more vocal sitting here yelling at them that they're doing a good job and encouraging them, right? Um, because it's a way to use what I have, right, to give that away. But here's, here's another dimension of this. Um, sometimes it's not shouting amen or you're doing a good job. Sometimes in my position, it's keeping my mouth shut when someone with less honor than me is leading and choosing not to correct, not to interrupt, not to intervene, you know what I mean? But to really let somebody else lead in a way that's different than me. And the best thing that I can do is just stay quiet, you know? Um, and I've had people in church come to me and be like, Joel, the way you stayed silent there gave me so much honor, you know what I mean? Because I knew I wasn't saying it how you would say it, you know? But like, you just let me say it. Um, so it's interesting, both in the speaking and sometimes in the silence, it's a way, you know, to, to give honor to other people. I think you all do this. Um, I've noticed in our church, when our church knows that someone's preaching their first sermon, you know, there's right now there's 17 people who preach at the gospel tab. Um, when someone's preaching their first sermon, pay attention. There are way more amens coming from you than when I preach. Um, but it should be that way. I don't need special treatment. I mean, shout if God's leading you to shout, but you don't need to shout to affirm me right? Like, I'm in front of you all the time. I get all of this honor. But the person who's coming up here preaching for the first time, oh, you ought to shout for them. You ought to clap for them, you know, um, because they need honor, right? We need to lift them up. It's just a very practical example. Well, that's a great um, segue into my answer for this, because I think mine is really short and simple. <laughs> it's like the longer I go, the more I realize that, like, God does use my silence more than he uses my words, um, and I'm thinking of this question more in like the context of relationships. You know, if you're coming into a relationship where you're discipling someone as a leader or you're just entering into friendship with them. Um, yeah, man, I used to think like the more I could speak in a way that made you feel like I understand you, the more honored you'd feel. And there are probably moments where it's good to be aware. Obviously, I want to try to like be aware of how someone does feel and think and approach certain things. But the more I go, like I did used to think, what does it look like for me to like have reconciliation in my relationships or my discipleship experiences? Like, what does that look like? What do I need to do to like sit down and talk about certain things and get to a place of quote unquote like reconciliation? And the more I go, the more I just, I'm realizing like if I approach that relationship, that discipleship opportunity, if I'm approaching that in humility and gentleness and I'm, and I'm like posturing myself to listen, then it's like I turn around and all of a sudden I realize, whoa, God did, he brought reconciliation, that relationship, like we are on a, in a deep place. And I didn't even have to do much is what it feels like. And that's the way it's supposed to be, you know, I'm not supposed to like use my privilege to come down and like help. Yes, exactly. It's like the less I'm doing, the more I'm just embracing humility and listening. Uh, like the more I'm seeing God do that in relationships and all that. So. Mm -hmm. And I want to say, if you're, if you're in a place where either your personality, culture, tribe often did not have a voice, part of your discipleship might mean using your voice more, 
You know what I mean? And this is kind of the point of the Apple thing. It's like, we're coming from different places in our descent. We're coming from wherever we were when Jesus found us into the fullness of his love. And if my voice was overactivated before Christ, then grace is going to mean that it gets less activated. But if my voice was underactivated before Christ, it means he's going to be saying, speak, child. You know what I mean? Um, and so he takes, and this is why we said it last week, we have to hear the Holy Spirit. Like holiness is not just the letter of the law. It's the spirit of God speaking to us, right? In these situations leading us into love. Um, yeah, and so uh, I, I love what Jake said there about um, like w- listening because listening is a way of giving up power. And I think one reason just keeping my mouth shut is a way to give up power, to give space in a meeting, right? Or in a service or whatever to somebody else, right? Um, And it makes me think about what people like you and me do with the power that we've inherited. Um, It's not all bad. Um, uh, we We didn't earn all of the power that we've inherited. There's historical stories, right? They have given us power. Um, and it just makes me wonder, as a follower of Christ, what do you do with this? You know, like, how, how do you um, relate to it? Um, one reason I'm asking this question as we close here is because uh, last week someone asked a really good question. They were like, okay, so I have power. Um, like, so let's just, like, just make it explicit. Let's say that my socioeconomic status, my race, my gender give me a certain amount of power, generally speaking. Um, and... You know, she, the, the uh, person who was asking the question says, sometimes I see this conversation happen like, well, I can use that power for Jesus. I can use that power to help people. That sounds right, but it's the, it's the, um, it's the fixing thing, right, that we were just talking about. It's still relying on my, my power to write a story. And I love that question because they were picking up on something like, that's not, that's not the full story of what God wants to do with the power that we've inherited. To me, part of what it looks like to use that power is to step into a place where maybe that power opened up a door for me, um, you know, and, and then actually to lose my power in that place. Um, so hopefully that's what, I hope, very imperfectly, but I hope that's what has happened in the life of our church. I hope that whatever power I've been given as lead pastor is just an opportunity for me to keep losing power and to keep, not to use it to help you, right? But just to lose it, um, to create space because, because I actually have power to lose the power, right? Because of where I'm at. Um, I have power to say, I'm not gonna preach every week. You know what I mean? I have power to step into these things. So I don't think we take our power into ministry to try to help people because then the story is still about me, right? Um, I think where God really works miracles is when we lose power. I think you have a story about that to close. Yeah, um, yeah, I think that's really good. Like approaching it that way and then like hearing God's voice in each situation for like what he wants us to do. Because I do think like, if we lean into his voice, he will speak in each of these specific instances that we might find. Like, for me, once over the last um, year and a half, I was just given an opportunity for something ministry-wise, and, um, and you know, on the other side of it, um, I was just left reflecting some, and, and I felt like, you know, I do think there are probably some dynamics at play 
that lead to why I may have been given a seat at that table when some other people I could probably think of off the top of my head were not. And I don't think there was any ill intention in any of it, but it's just there are dynamics at play. Yes, that's a good way of putting it. Yes, right. And so, you know, it kind of left me in this place of, okay, as this thing moves forward, um, and again, like these dynamics are just as present in, in church and, and ministry as they are outside of the church, you know. Um, but I was like, what do I do with this? Because I think my first reaction to it all was like, I need to like, I need to give up my seat so that someone else can sit down. And I think that like, if the Lord's leading you to that place, like that's a super like there's sacrifice in that. And I think there are times where he might say to do that. Like, yes, get up and, and open up that seat. And I'm going to fill it with someone different. And, um, and there is humility in that. And there's partnering with the kingdom in that. But in this case, you know, as I was reflecting and talking with friends, like I felt God's voice was not saying that. For me, it was, no, remain seated. Um, there may have been dynamics at play for while you're sitting there rather than you're going to say something. Can I point out yeah. something there that... Uh, you were mentioned friends, but Kiara played a role in this story, right? I didn't want to use names, but yes, Kiara. Sorry. And it was actually her that she was saying, I, I don't know if the Lord's saying to like give up your seat. Like he may want to like he may want you to be there to create space for others to come and sit. And, you know, that led me to reflect and I really could could tell that that's what the Lord was saying. In this case, um, you know, again, it isn't to stay in that seat and power up. It's to lose power when we're in the door, like Joel just said. But in this case, the Lord was saying, remain seated, and I'm going to use, like, basically humility. It's not your powerful words or anything like that, um, but to create space at that table. And so I think the moral of the story for me there is, like, if we're approaching it in humility, but leaning into what the Lord is saying in each situation, I do think he speaks to us, and we can respond accordingly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, that's what we got. Steve, could you close for us? Thank you, everybody, for listening. This has been really good doing this with you, and I need these apples at the next campus, so I'm going to take them with me.